Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Before we jump into what's on your handout, which is the Gospels themselves, I want to give you a few points about the Gospels that I'm hoping will be helpful as you read them. I'm guessing that probably all of you have read the Gospels, parts of or all of the Gospels. The first thing that's worth pointing out is sometimes we take for granted the importance of these four books that all are an account of the life and death of Jesus. And I was just thinking as I prepared this lesson, what would our lives be like if we had the whole Bible, but we didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> How much of your comfort, how many of the verses that you've memorized that have helped you in very difficult times in your life are words of Jesus that come from the Gospels? We are privileged. No matter how difficult life might be right now for you, whatever your circumstances, you are so blessed, privileged, blessed by the Lord that he's given us these four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Really, everything we are as Christians comes from Christ, Jesus Christ. So this central piece of history, Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension to heaven, which the gospels tell us, this is the center of the Bible in many ways. Later letters, as you're going to see, will explain what happened in the Gospels, just like the Old Testament prepared you for the Gospels. But in some sense, the Gospels sit right in the middle of your Bible on purpose. I know it's not the middle, but it's kind of the middle of your Bible on purpose because everything's pointing to them, to the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we're talking about today. We need to talk just very briefly about the nature of the Gospels because these were written 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. There are a lot of differences between now and then in terms of how people wrote things, how people told stories or wrote histories or biographies, what we have in the Gospels and today. Some of these things you're aware of just from reading, but these might have been things that today as a Westerner in the 21st century have bothered you in reading the Gospels. For example, you're reading in one of the Gospels, say Matthew, Words that Jesus spoke, you've memorized them, you're cherishing every word. Then you go over to Mark and you read the same words Jesus spoke, but some of them are different. Wait a minute, who's wrong? Matthew or Mark or Luke, sometimes there's some different, they're saying essentially the same thing, but some of the words are different. Have you ever noticed that? Does that bother you? What is this? That only bothers us because we're 21st century Westerners. Today, if you read a biography or anything and there are quotation marks, you expect an exact quotation, word for word. There can't be any changed words. That's because today that's on a human level possible because you have ways of recording things that have been said. In Jesus' day when he was speaking, no one had a camcorder. No one had an audio voice recorder that they were doing. Nobody was writing it down as he spoke. They were sitting and listening to him speak. And then many years later, they write them down. 
that's fine. This is an oral culture back in the day. This is how history and biography was done back in the day. And there was no expectation that you would have exact word-for-word -word quotations. It just wasn't because everyone recognized that's just not humanly possible. And you can say, well, the Bible's inspired, so God could have dictated it and made that happen. You're right, but he didn't. <laughs> he used human agents. So, I just want to point out that we have four Gospels. They all tell the same story. They're all referring to the same history. They're not four histories. There's one life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was real. Nothing fake about it. But they're different people. And they're telling the story uniquely. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a very fancy name that we give to those three Gospels. And you get a million bonus points if anyone knows that name. Oh, okay. You don't get that many bonus points. I have to give out too many. You all know. So, synoptic Gospels. The syn, S-Y-N, means together. And the optics, your eye, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a common view, meaning they look a lot alike. If you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're different, but they're very similar. They tell a lot of the same stories. Again, not exact quotations, but they tell a lot of the same stories, a lot of the same sayings. Some will add some, some will have some others. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very similar. And John is out there doing his own thing. And for many of you, John's your favorite gospel. So we're glad that God gave us John. But John is much more what we call theological. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more focused on this is what happened. This is what Jesus said, and this is what Jesus did. Whereas John, probably writing later, we don't know that for sure, but probably writing later than the others, is more interested in also giving you some of the theology of who Jesus was. That's why John begins, unlike the others, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about the beginning of the universe, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, so... John is very precious, very sweet, and tells us many things the other Gospels don't. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptics, very similar. John is different, but again, they're all talking about the same history. As for why God did that, wouldn't it have been convenient if God just gave you one Gospel? Maybe you've read a harmony of the Gospels where someone will put all four of them together, and you say, why didn't God just do that? Well, you can ask him when you meet him, but if we were guessing, there are many reasons. One is that just to give you more confidence in the historical credibility of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Even the Old Testament said, don't believe anything unless it's on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and you have four. So this helps us to know, because the stories aren't identical, that makes it very clear they weren't colluding or working together to make these things up. Otherwise, the stories would be identical, <laughs> but they're not. These were different humans connected with Jesus, putting these things together and giving us four Gospels. The Gospels, also we have four because the four of them, as we're about to see, by God's wisdom, have different emphases. You saw this in the Old Testament already, so this isn't new for you. Because do you remember First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? And you read that and you're like, these are the same. <laughs> Why am I reading this? That was a long book. Why am I reading it again? As you saw, Dan was teaching on, First and Second Chronicles tell the same story, but with a different emphasis, an emphasis on the return from Babylon that you don't have in First and Second Kings. So, same with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you want to know what the emphases are, well, 
Buckle up. That's what we're talking about today. All right. This is a manuscript page from the Book of Kells. Uh, the Book of Kells was uh, a manuscript of the Bible from about the 9th century. So that's about 800 A.D. So this is 1,200 years ago. And back in the day, if you study any of these medieval manuscripts to old, old Bibles, not everybody had a Bible. Can't just have an ESV Bible, you know, and buy it at the store for $20 and have it. It was very exclusive. And so often they would do very nice manuscript art. And so here's some art here. This art represents the four evangelists. I'm not going to put too much emphasis on this because I don't know God's intentions in this. But I will say that over the last 2,000 years, many, many Christians have looked at the four creatures. You remember these from Ezekiel and from Revelation? The four living creatures? And have tried to tie them to different of the evangelists. So the four living creatures were a human, a lion, an ox, and what was the last one? An eagle. Yes, an eagle. A human, lion, ox, eagle. Those are in Revelation. The Bible doesn't say those refers to the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, so we're just, basically we're just being creative here. And personally, it's a helpful way for me to remember the emphases of the books. But what the church has done throughout its history has tried to tie those to different emphases, different books. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they've done it differently all throughout history. <laughs> Some people say the lion's Matthew and others say, no, the lion is Mark and they debate it. We don't care. But here's how I think of it, if it's at all helpful for you. And if not, throw it away. It doesn't matter. But it does point out that the Gospels have different emphases. So the way the book of Kells represents it and the way I think of it, and Augustine did too, so it's got to be right, is that Matthew is a, the lion. And as we'll see, he's the lion because the lion of Judah. And Judah had the Messiah, the king. It's a reference to the kingliness of Jesus which we're going to see in Matthew. So Matthew's the lion. Then you have Mark, who's the human, because Mark is the simplest telling focused on just the life and the actions of Jesus as a man. So the human. Luke is the ox because in Luke, Jesus is presented as a sacrifice, a savior, and the ox you would sacrifice in the Old Testament. Also because the ox pulls the plow. He's the servant and the Son of Man came to serve. And you see that in Luke especially, where Jesus is reaching out and serving those who are difficult to serve. And finally, John, we make him the eagle because he gives us the bird's eye view from above of who Jesus really is. He's truly God. So if you find that helpful, awesome. And if you don't, just ignore all of that. It doesn't matter. The main point I want to make with this is you have four Gospels because in God's wisdom, he wanted the story of his son told from four different people with four different interests and emphases. So let's see what those emphases are now. My goal this morning is not to make you closely familiar with all of these books. That is an utter impossibility in the next half hour. But my goal, just like our goal in this class is, I want you to be able to open Matthew up later and have a sense of what Matthew's focused on. Like what's Matthew about? How is Matthew any different than Mark, Luke, or John? So I want to give you a sense of that. If you remember from our first class, gave this summary of all the books, and this was the summary of Matthew here. 
This account of Jesus' life focuses especially on how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, you have to have a Bible. And if you don't, Dan went through yesterday and put Bibles in these seats in front of you. So you literally have no excuse. Grab a Bible and flip to Matthew, the very beginning of it. So this is in your New Testament. You can see it's way past halfway, maybe three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You're in the New Testament just find the first book in the New Testament. Whoop, I don't want to give you that. Go to Matthew. What's helpful about the Gospels is that the introduction, the first part of every Gospel, in some way sets you up for what the emphases are going to be in the Gospel. So here's Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy, and I just want to pause right there. You don't have to remember this, but the word that Matthew's using right there, the book of the genealogy, is a phrase that's used identically in the Greek translation of Genesis over and over and over at every major division of the book of Genesis. Every time you're shifting in Genesis to a new set of stories, you always get the book of the genealogy. It's unfortunately translated different in English in your translations at different times. But that's the Greek that's used. It's called the Toledot formula, if that's interesting to you. But that's used to divide up Genesis. And Matthew, and only Matthew, starts his gospel that way. Interesting. I wonder if he's going to be especially focused on the Old Testament. <laughs> he is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Christ we use as sort of a last name of Jesus, if you will, but it's not really Jesus' last name. What does Christ mean to a Jewish person? Messiah, anointed. This is the anointed king or Messiah, Mashiach, who's going to come sit on the throne of David that the Old Testament promised, the one everyone hopes for. So you see that word, Christ? So you're seeing Matthew's emphases already. The son of David... Because the Messiah is coming from David, key figure of the Old Testament, the son of Abraham. I mean, another, if you're going to point out the most important characters besides Moses in the Old Testament, it's going to be Abraham and David. So you can already see that Matthew is especially knowledgeable of and interested in the Old Testament. And he's going to be interested in how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. All right. To satisfy your heart with that little blank, you can write in Messiah. So what is the emphasis? Now, in all of the Gospels, Jesus is presented as everything that he is. A savior, a lord, a teacher, etc., 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 okay? But we're talking about distinctives or emphases. What does Matthew emphasize more than the other Gospels do? Number one, it's that Jesus is the Messiah because he's going to fulfill the Old Testament. He's the promised king. Number two is teacher, and we'll come back to that in a second when we look at the structure of Matthew. But Matthew has more of Jesus' blocks of teaching than any other of the Gospels by far. John, in some ways, comes close. But Matthew has highly structured them to give you these blocks of Jesus' teaching to show that he is a teacher. Going along with that, distinctives-wise, 
That first blank is fulfillment, which has two L's. It's always tricky. There, well, three L's, you know, but two are together. Fulfillment. This is, fulfillment is probably the best way if you're just going to remember one thing about Matthew. Remember fulfillment. So if that helps you to remember the Lion of Judah, fulfilling the Lion of Judah, Old Testament, whatever. But that's the idea of Matthew. Now, we've said this before, and someone was talking to me and said, that was shocking to hear, and it is. You know the order of the books of the Bible are not inspired? <gasps> Gasp. They're not inspired, but don't change them. Why change them? It's been 2,000 years. Let's keep them. They're great. And this one especially is there's a wisdom to putting Matthew first. Most scholars today think that Mark was actually written first. We'll see in eternity if that was true or not, but most Bible scholars think Mark was written first. So why is Matthew first in our Bible? Because Matthew connects the Old and New Testament. Just like Malachi at the end of the Old Testament prepares you for the, Jesus to come into his temple, Matthew is a great starting book because it is, I mean, look at that first verse. You can't beat that. You just read the Old Testament. You plowed through it in your Bible reading. You're excited. You read Genesis and wow, look at that. The book of the genealogy. I remember that. You're excited about this Christ, this Messiah that Isaiah talked about. Wow, there he is, the Christ. You read all about David and First and Second Samuel, this great king and all the later prophets hoping for his descendant. Wow, look, his descendant, son of David. You remember Abraham, read so much about him in Genesis. Everybody talked about him. Israel was descendants of Abraham, people of promise, circumcision through Abraham. Wow, there he is. So fulfillment. Jesus is going to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Another theme, and I had to put this one, is discerning revelation. Again, it's in all the Gospels. But Matthew is, I think, more interested in this theme and more positive about it than probably any of the other Gospels are. I have to put this because uh, some of you know I'm taking classes at Southern Seminary right now. And the last thing I have to do before I graduate with my current degree is finish my thesis, which is just a big paper. And this big paper is on discerning revelation in Matthew. So if I didn't put that, my paper's useless, okay? But I really do see this as a major theme of Matthew. So, for example, you guys remember in Matthew 11, the passage you love, verse 28 to 30, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You love that one? Only Matthew has it. Do you know what Jesus says right before that? He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. Or, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. Matthew's the only guy saying that. Sounds like John. He's not even a synoptic guy. Sounds like John right there. This idea of revealing the Father. And only Jesus does it. When you get to Matthew 13... The disciples asked Jesus, why are you telling all these parables? And Jesus tells his disciples, because to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but not to them. You can discern the revelation I'm giving you of the Father, and they can't. When you get later to the great confession of Peter, which is like the climax of all the Gospels, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only Matthew includes these words. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, 
Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So over and over, Matthew is focusing on this idea of discerning revelation from God, from the Father. It comes through Jesus, and God has to give you eyes to see it. So, and lastly here, the church. This admittedly is not a major emphasis throughout Matthew, but it is a distinctive of Matthew. Because one of Jesus' speeches, we'll see in a second, an entire chapter, chapter 18, we call the, the church speech, if you will. It's about the church. So when we practice church discipline here at Faith Bible Church, it's because in Matthew chapter 18, that's how Jesus said his church is to function. Or again, you have Jesus speaking to Peter, that same confession, blessed are you, Simon, because Flesh and bones didn't reveal this. My father revealed this. And I tell you, you are, Simon, you're Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. So you have Jesus even using the word church, which is really going to be used a lot later. But he uses that in Matthew. So that's a distinctive of Matthew as well. All right, here's a little outline for you. Um, So that blank is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. Man, there's so much we could say about the outline of Matthew and really the outline of the Gospels. Here's the first thing I do want to say. No outline of any of the Gospels is perfect. The reason for this is the way that ancient biographies functioned. So again, here we are, 21st century in the West. When you're reading a biography, you expect quotations to be exact. Don't expect that in the Bible. And you expect chronology, meaning I want to know what happened first, and then I want to know what happened second, and I want to know what happened third, fourth, fifth, sixth, until the end, and we're done. That's not the way ancient biographies worked. Again, if you're in an oral culture, and a lot of this is being communicated orally, God inspired the scriptures by his spirit, but he used humans in an oral culture to do it. And their expectation of any story back then was not that you're going to get an exact A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the end. That's why when you read Matthew or Mark or Luke and they're telling the same story, but you'll see them in different parts of their story. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on? That's not a problem. That's only a problem for you because you live today. But it was understood back then that they don't have to tell this unless they literally say the next day, then it has to be the next day, okay? But the expectation at that time was you can rearrange things that happen. And all of the gospel writers do. So they rearrange events that happen and not for no reason. Usually it's to highlight certain themes at different times. So they all have a purpose in this. So that's why it's not usually just as easy as saying like, okay, here's the first period of Jesus' life. Here's the second period of his life. Here's the third one. And then he's done. The one consistency in terms of chronology with all of the gospels I suppose yeah it's just the only one okay here's the only one you'll see it they all end with the death and resurrection of Jesus all of them nobody moves that anywhere which makes sense because that's the end of the story so they all have a sort of introduction although those are different and they all end with it but if you're wanting a really crisp outline I'm sorry you don't get one But if you're the sort of person who does want a crisp outline, Matthew's the closest you're going to get. 
Because Matthew's actually bewildering in how structured this book is for an ancient biography. The others are not so much. Matthew is. We don't have time to go into all of it, but you can see an easy way to think of it is Matthew has this introduction, which includes the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist presenting him, his baptism, his temptation, the usual introductory things, getting Jesus ready for his ministry. And then once you get into chapter 5 of Matthew, all the way to chapter 20, Matthew is pretty clearly, and almost every scholar agrees, Matthew's pretty clearly broken into five major speeches that Jesus gives. What will happen is Jesus will give a speech or a series of speeches. It'll be a big chunk in your Bible that's all red letter. So actually, if you have your Bible, if you look, if you just start flipping pages, mine's not a red letter, so yours will look different. You'll notice one, two, three, four you're not seeing many red letters, not much of Jesus' speech because it's just introductory, just a few of his. When you get to chapter 5, 6, 7, all red letters because it's Jesus giving his first speech. And notice when you get to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, you see that? Okay. Now skip over to chapter 10, which is the next speech. Go to the end of chapter 10, start of 11. When Jesus had finished instructing them, now skip over to 13, that's the next one. It's a lot of flipping, you can do it. Get to the end of 13 here, and you get to verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, let's just do all of them, because you're almost there. You know the point. Get to 18. Start of chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, we go on. But you get the point, right? So Matthew, every time he finishes one of Jesus' big speeches, says the same thing. Jesus is talking a long time. He says, okay, now when Jesus finished, and then he goes into a chapter or a few chapters of things Jesus did. So you have a speech, and then you have what Jesus did with some words. Then you have a speech, what Jesus did, speech, what Jesus did. And that is basically the way that these are set up. So that Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 to 7. Missions, that's chapter 10 when he sends the disciples out. Parables of the Kingdoms 13. Church is 18. And the end times is, I believe, 20. The Olivet Discourse. Might, might be multiple chapters there. I don't recall. So there you go. And then the death and resurrection. So every gospel will have sort of an introduction, the body of what Jesus did and his death and resurrection, but that's how Matthew sets it up. Here we go. We got to go to Mark. Matthew is, at this moment, my favorite gospel because I'm studying it a bunch. But, as I said, most scholars put a priority on Mark because they think it was written first. There are other things very unique about Mark. This account of Jesus' life is the briefest and most to the point. We'll talk about that. All right, what are the emphases in Mark? Number one, it's that Jesus was a man. Remember, because that's the picture on the book of Kells, Lion of Judah for Matthew, and a man for Mark. The reason we say that is because Mark doesn't give us even close to as much teaching as Matthew or even close to as many parables as Luke 
or even close to as much God's eye view of theology as John. So what does Mark give us? It is the shortest gospel, and it gives you a real quick newspaper-style account of what Jesus did with some of his teachings as well. But it's very much focused on what he did as a man. You do have instances, even in Mark, that point us forward to the fact that Jesus is God, but it's not as much highlighted. In fact, in Mark, more than in the other Gospels, what Mark wants to highlight is how many times Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. So even Peter's confession, you're the Christ. Mark is the one that adds, and then Jesus told them, don't tell anybody that. So Mark's focus is on Jesus as a human, the works that God had sent him to do. And the other themes are muted more in Mark. Not because they weren't there, but just that's not Mark's focus. Mark's focus is on him, is on Jesus as a man and as a suffering servant. Um, We see this in Mark. I don't know if I have the reference here, but you know the passage. The Son of Man came, not that one. It is... Here it is, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That would probably be a good theme verse of Mark. You have the ransom in his death and resurrection and the fact that he came to serve. Mark also highlights that he is a suffering servant because the disciples in Mark, Mark emphasizes that the disciples misunderstand Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll talk about that here. If I just go to the beginning of Mark for you, and you can go there too, second book there. One thing you'll notice is the first verse, the beginning of the gospel, not the book of the genealogy, that's Matthew, but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we'll see that at the end of Mark again when the centurion says, this was the Son of God. But apart from those, you don't see Son of God in Mark. It's not emphasized. And then what you have in Mark is no story of Jesus' birth, like Matthew and Luke have. No story of his pre-existence like John has. Mark goes right into, boom, John the Baptist. Here we go, because that's how Mark rolls. It's going to be a short gospel, and we're going to keep it moving and focus on the humanity of Jesus. Here are some distinctives. It's brief. You know that? It's the shortest one. So if you want to read a gospel and don't have a lot of time, read Mark. It's action-focused. Matthew has these huge blocks of teaching, teaching, teaching. John has long extended discourse that Jesus has with his disciples there in the upper room. It's so many chapters, like rich teaching. And Luke as well. Mark has Jesus' teaching, but a lot less. If you have a red-letter Bible, you see a lot fewer red words. Because Mark wants you to know this is what Jesus did, leading to his crucifixion and resurrection. And lastly, Jesus is misunderstood. So when I said He's a suffering servant. The suffering piece is Mark emphasizes that the disciples, they did not expect Jesus as a Messiah to come and suffer. They wanted him to come, kill the Romans, give them money and power. Isn't that what everybody wants? (laughs) And Jesus tells them, no, 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 don't even tell anyone I'm the Messiah because I have a mission to accomplish and it's not to be the king. It is to suffer to die and resurrect. All right, here's a little outline for you from Mark. Again, it's imperfect, but it's 
most people agree this is a good breakup of it. The introduction, it's short, one chapter, because Mark's short. No nativity. And then the rest of the book, if we're going to do suffering servant, you can break into his servanthood and into his suffering. So up until chapter 8, the focus is on Jesus' mighty deeds. It's on again. He's doing great works. And then you have Peter's confession. This is true in all the Gospels. That's kind of the climax. And then you have a switch into Jesus as the sufferer. Everything becomes focused on the coming, resurrect, or coming crucifixion and the crucifixion. So he predicts it right after Peter says, you're the Christ. He says, don't tell anyone. And the Son of Man, that's me, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die. And Peter's like, that doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> the disciples don't get it all the way through Mark. Then you have the triumphal entry. Again, the other Gospels have this too. And then the death and the resurrection. 16 chapters. That's the shortest. All the other Gospels have at least 20. Mark has 16. A little side note on Mark. You know when you get to chapter 16 that your Bibles will probably have a footnote and say some of these verses about the resurrection afterward, what happened afterward, might not be original to the Bible. So there's some question of what the original manuscript said. That's one of the only two places in all of the Gospels where there's any length of text where we're not 100% sure if that was original or added very early on. Might be true even if it was added, but is it part of the original Bible? All right, Luke. This account of Jesus' life is a thorough account written by a doctor. Praise God for you doctors out there. Give special attention to issues of money, God's overall saving work in the world, pointing toward the inclusion of non-Israelites among God's people. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. You read about him in Acts. His emphasis here, number one, is that Jesus is a savior. Let me go here. So, for example, you remember the angels only in Luke saying to the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. Or Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So salvation, a horn of salvation has been raised up. Salvation for Israel, for God's people, is a focus right here. And also friend of sinners. It's my favorite part of Luke. Luke has a focus on Jesus befriending the outcasts, the sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the people who are ruining society, the people who are blatantly rejecting God, people that nobody else wanted to associate with. Luke very clearly emphasizes, more than the other Gospels, how Jesus spent time with them, loved them, called Zacchaeus, come on down out of that tree, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house with all your tax collector friends. You have this all through Luke. So the religious leaders are upset, and in Luke 5, Jesus' response is, those who are well don't need a doctor, just those who are sick, which Luke as a doctor, that's fitting, as he reads that. Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a good theme verse for Luke. He's come to call sinners. Another emphasis, oh, in terms of outcasts, Luke also has the most to say about people who in that day tended to be marginalized. He has the most to say about women and exalting women. He has the most to say about non-Jews and God's future plan because 
Luke is the only gospel that comes as part one of a two-part series, the second being Acts, which talks about how Jesus' work continued onward out to the Gentiles. So Luke talks about them. But these were all people marginalized and the poor. People thought little of. Jesus focused on them. Lastly, this idea of history, not only that Luke was writing a very careful history, which if you read the beginning of Luke 1, I won't, but he, tells, he says, I've been very careful in compiling this history. I've used sources, I've made sure that they're correct, I've put them, because Luke wasn't with Jesus, he was with Paul. He said, I worked really hard to get eyewitnesses, put this together. But I also mean by history that Luke situates the life of Jesus most clearly in the history of the world. So Matthew has a genealogy that stretches from Abraham to Jesus. And if you've ever read Luke's genealogy that comes a little later in Luke, one of the interesting things is it, does, it doesn't stop at Abraham. Who does it go all the way to? Remember? Going backwards, who does it go to? Yeah, literally God, because it goes Adam, son of God. So Adam, God, Adam, we created, and then all the descendants, literally the flow of all human history. Luke is the most universal, the broadest in his scope, and he's situating Jesus. That's why you see in Luke more things like, in the year Quirinius was the governor, and this person was in this situation in Rome. He's giving you this larger picture of the Roman Empire and the history of the world and salvation history of what Jesus is doing in the midst of that. Here's a little uh, outline Again, most of the Gospels can kind of be divided geographically like this, but Luke is the clearest, I think. So you have this introduction, the first four chapters, including the Christmas story that Charlie Brown's friend reads. Then you've got an idea of north to south. That's probably the easiest way to think of Luke. Is he's Jesus' ministry up in Galilee in the north? Again, Galilee of the Gentiles. But then he goes down south toward Jerusalem. And there is an interesting inversion because Luke starts with this idea, this huge idea of all history and Rome and everything. And then Jesus even starts in, in the Galilee of the Gentiles. But it narrows down to the people of Israel, dies in Jerusalem. And then Acts reverses it and from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So just an interesting structural point. Death and resurrection. All right, last point. You're doing great. Matthew's the lion of Judah because fulfillment. Mark is the man because it's an action-packed. What did Jesus do as a man? And then Luke. Luke was the ox because Jesus came to serve, to get dirty, get in the dirt, pull the plow, care for the outcasts. And now we get to John, the eagle. High-flying John in a, in a league of his own, doing his own thing. This account of Jesus' life is definitely the most unique of the accounts. It contains several long passages of Jesus' teaching. It's written to show that Jesus is the Son of God. So, emphases about Jesus in John include that he's the Son of God and that he's God. That he's God, which the way Jesus uses son of God as a Hebraism also means that he's God, but it didn't have to in that day, but it did when Jesus used it. But God, that's a focus. So John 1.1, 1, 1, again, if you look at the beginnings of these books, you can see what the rest of the book's going to be about. 
and John 1.1. In the beginning, we're not talking John the Baptist. We're not talking Gabriel coming to Mary. What are we talking about? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and revealed the Father to us. So Jesus is God. And John emphasizes that more than anyone else. You'll see Jesus later say to the Jews, before Abraham ever existed, not I was, but I am. It's the name Yahweh. Took it to himself so the Jews were going to stone him because he claimed to be God. Distinctives of John. You'll see this in 1 John, his letter that we're going to preach after Philippians, but you see it in his gospel as well. So many opposites. John seems to be a very clear thinker. It's either this or it's this. <laughs> Some of you are like that, aren't you? You don't like the gray in between there. Just this or it's this. Don't give me any caveats, okay? Just this or this. It's either light or it's dark. It's not, you know, it's nothing in between. It's either light or it's dark. It's either life or it's death. It's either from above or it's from below. So, if you're like that, go read John. You'll love it. Because John, as a person, that's his emphasis, are these opposites. Very clear. Eternal life is a focus. Really, John uses eternal life in a way that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, use the term the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So they emphasize that part of Jesus' teaching. And John probably being in a different context or whatever, he wants to emphasize more of Jesus' teachings about eternal life. John was probably therefore writing to a non or less Jewish audience, again, focusing outward more universally later on. And if that were true, then kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which made a lot of sense to a Jewish person, might not have made as much sense to the people he was writing to, maybe a more Greek audience. Eternal life communicates pretty well. And it was also an important part of Jesus' teaching. Of course, you know the famous verse about eternal life from John. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son, so that we may have eternal life. And lastly, faith. I shouldn't have used the word faith. I should have used the word believe. I don't think you even find the word faith in John, surprisingly. But you do find the word believe all the time. At the end, John summarizes what he was doing in chapter 20 and says, these things I've written to you. Wait, is that first John? Actually, I've got it here. Let me give you the John version. John 20. Jesus did many other things, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's your outline as we close up. Again, you have an introduction. If you're a part of the ladies' study here at Faith Bible Church, you don't even need this because you're going through John and you've got some great teachers and you're going to know John really well. But John chapters 2 through 11 are structured around seven signs Jesus does. You remember the early ones, changing water into wine, for example. And then seven sets of teaching that Jesus does. Notice the chapters on the death and resurrection of Jesus in John. 12 to 21, that's like half the book is about Jesus at the Last Supper or entering Jerusalem, Last Supper, dying, resurrecting. 
John puts such an emphasis there and gives us so much good teaching there. I hope you will go and read the Gospels. <laughs> I know this is a lot of information. Read all the Gospels. They all present to you Jesus from a different angle, like looking at a diamond at different angles. That's why God's given you these four Gospels, so that you can see as much of Jesus as is humanly possible. So I encourage you to be reading in the Gospels very regularly. Let me pray and we will be done. Lord, thank you for what you've given us here in these Gospels. For us, we don't have a hobby or an interest that is higher than our interest in your Son, Jesus Christ. He is our very life, and our lives are hidden with him in you, in heaven. We are Christians, followers of Jesus, the way of Jesus, so to have such an abundance of material that tells us about his life and death and resurrection, his teachings, his actions, his mercy, his anger, and that in him we should see you clearly revealed, wearing our own skin. Please forgive us for how much we tend to neglect your word in general and the gospel specifically. And I pray that these would be like honeycomb to our soul. And in all of the uncertainties of life and its burdens and discouragements, we would find in these words of Jesus great comfort to help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.